You're listening to KTOO News Juno, 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. Each month, seven Juno locals tell a seven-minute story based on a theme. April's theme was all or nothing. The stories you're about to hear were told at Northern Light United Church on April 12, 2022. Co-hosts for the evening were Alita Buss and David Noon. Donations collected went to Marie Drake Planetarium. Music was performed by Heather Mitchell and Tom Loker. All right, Steve Kosis is the first storyteller for the evening. Steve was born and raised in New Jersey and Oregon. He was drafted in 1972 and served in the Navy. He worked in math and computers. Moved to Juneau in 1998 to work for NOAA Fisheries. His hobbies include travel, hiking, biking, skiing, kayaking, and astronomy. He's been married for 43 years to Christina Della Rosa, who greeted you at the door as you came in. He finished his bucket finished his bucket list in 2017 with a trek around Mount Kailas in western Tibet. Please help me welcome Steve to the stage. Yes. Do not fear, Steve is here. Namaste. So, I'm going to talk about how astronomy changed my life, but I'll first have to mention the first time I saw the aurora was in the parking lot here at Northern Light Church. So I saw the Northern Lights at Northern Light Church. So the intro said, I was born and raised in New Jersey, whose state motto is liberty and prosperity. We moved to Oregon, the family. We moved from East Coast to West Coast. The motto of Oregon is she flies with her own wings. So of course we know the motto of Alaska is north to the future. So when we arrived in Oregon, the public school there was great. They had a wonderful science curriculum in math, physics, chemistry, and astronomy. And I saw in the magazine that there was to be a meteor storm. So I was outside on the predicted night of the meteor storm, and I saw it. And let me just say that a meteor storm is to a meteor shower as a monsoon downpour is to a drizzle. It was a snowstorm in the sky, a rainstorm with white raindrops, and it lasted for hours. And this triggered my interest in astronomy. So I built a eight-inch reflecting telescope. I served as an intern at the Medford Senior High Planetarium, which is very similar to the Marie Drake Planetarium here in Juneau. I'm a board member at it. And it ended up being a lifelong interest in astronomy. So I'm going to talk about some celestial events that gave me all and some celestial events that gave me nothing. Let's fast forward to 2004. And that year in June, there was to be a Venus transit. Now, the planets Earth and Venus have a gravitational coupling. It's called the orbital resonance. And one of the results of that is that about every 120 years, Venus comes between the sun and the Earth. And you can see Venus is a silhouette moving across the sun. It takes four to six hours. So in June of 2004, this was to be visible in the north. So my wife and I drove up north 
by Dawson City, turned off at the Dempster Highway, drove up north towards Inuvik, and we camped in the Tombstone Mountains. And that night, the weather was great, so we're looking forward to a clear day for the Venus Transit. So we woke up in the morning, and it was clouds. Now, the transit lasts for about five hours, so we're hoping that the clouds would go away. So we waited and waited. It was clouds, clouds, clouds. So we did not see the Venus Transit in 2004. However, the Venus Transit, though it's every 120 years, you can only see it once in your lifespan, it comes in a pair, separated by eight years apart. So the next Venus Transit was gonna be 2012. So I had one more chance in my lifespan to see the Venus Transit. So fast forward to 2012, it's going to be visible in Juneau, so we set up a tripod with a solar telescope, a hydrogen alpha filter, an hour band filter at Marine Dock, and we were gonna share it with other people, the Venus Transit. So Venus Transit's are always in June or December. So this is June and Juno, and we got up that morning, it was cloudy, but we still had five hours to see the transit. So we were waiting and waiting and waiting, the clouds never parted. That was the big disappointment. I was not gonna see the Venus transit in my lifespan. So that's the nothing. So let me go to the really, really big all, and this is total solar eclipses. Now I've been to eight total solar eclipses, which is not really a big deal, because I've met Fred Espinak, who works for NASA. He's seen more than 60. But eight is pretty good for me. That means I've been under the moon's shadow for at least 30 minutes with the eight total solar eclipses I've been to. And let me just say, you have to be under the moon's shadow. You have to be under totality, which is like winning the lottery. If you're outside totality, the moon's shadow is 80 to 100 miles wide. It's like losing the lottery. A partial eclipse does not compare at all to a total solar eclipse. The total solar eclipse, once the moon covers the sun, where the sun was in the sky becomes a black hole. And the black hole surrounded by an aurora of the sun, which is dynamic and changing over time. Around the limb of the sun, there's crimson flares, and the brighter stars and planets become visible. It's day for night, and around the horizon, there's a million sunsets. It's this incredible view. It induces feelings of awe, reverence, fear, exaltation, exhilaration, happiness, joy. So it creates all these different feelings when you see totality. It should be on everyone's bucket list to see at least one totality. So I'll just go back to the last total solar eclipse that I viewed, which was in August 2017. Five of us here in Juneau flew down to Bend, went to the Warm Springs Reservation, camped there, Beautiful weather in the evening. The next day, beautiful weather. We positioned ourselves at a prominent point. A hundred miles to the west was Mount Jefferson, a glacier snow-covered mountain. When the moon shadow hit Mount Jefferson, Mount Jefferson disappeared, just like that magician David Copperfield making an elephant disappeared. The moon shadow was moving around a thousand miles an hour, so it hit us in six seconds. We could see it coming as a dark thunderhead. It covered the sun, we, black hole sun, aurora changing, crimson flares around the limb of the sun, the brighter stars and planets came out. It was awe, exaltation, and exhilaration for that eclipse. Now, if you do wanna see an eclipse, the next one that's very accessible is in 2024 in April. The best place in the US to see it will be in southwestern Texas. The shadow will be moving southwest and northeast. So that'll be the next one to see, and the most 
favorable eclipse right now is Saros cycle 136. That's a cycle, and that'll be in 2027. That's the longest lasting totality right now is the Saros cycle 136. The next one of that will be 2027. And that'll be visible over northern Africa in the Middle East. I hope to be at both of those eclipses. Thank you. Namaste. Our next storyteller is Mim Iben, born close enough to Hershey, Pennsylvania. She could smell the beans roasting and has never met a chocolate bar she doesn't like. Today, she works at the Forest Service here in Juneau. Most days, you can find her chasing sunlight on trails and buying earrings from Kindred Post. One part coffee, two parts enthusiasm. Mim is honored to share the stage with the other storytellers tonight on Lingit Ani. So today's theme is uh, particularly fitting for my dad, so I thought I'd share some of his stories with you folks. Pete was 47 when I was born, which wouldn't have been a big deal, except he had really leaned into the bachelor lifestyle, you know, given it his all. He had this bachelor pad with shag carpets that had never been cleaned and like a pool table, the whole size bar. And when you listen to him talk about his dating history, it kind of sounds like the song Mambo Number no. 5 with all of the Britneys and Wendy's and Candies in central Pennsylvania. And so having a baby wasn't exactly in the cards. It wasn't in his agenda. But he tells this great story about the day I was born. It was the day of the Kentucky Derby. And he had the winning bet all ready to go on Unbridled Song. He just happened to call my mom, you know, from the track just to get some luck. He like, oh my gosh, Wendy, pack your bags. We're going to be millionaires. And she had already gone into labor, so it was the neighbor who answered. Um, so he left it. He left the track. He went straight to the hospital. So from day one, he'd, you know, like pick up my chin just a little bit, and he'd be like, Mario, I chose you. I chose you over, the, over all the winnings, and I'd choose you every single day because I'm on your team. So it's not always been the easiest for my dad to choose me. My mom uh, had been off of her psychiatric medication when she was pregnant, and so um, she was suffering some complications through the pregnancy. So when my dad showed up at the hospital, you know, he had a cigar in each hand and went up to the doctor and, like, pat him on the back and was like, Doc, when can I take the pretty lady and the little kiddo home? And the doctor was like, sir, it's 1996. You cannot smoke in here. But the doctor informed my father that he could take his daughter home anytime, but that my mom was going to stay for a little while longer. So my father, Pete, and I, we left in the baby blue Mustang. And I know what you're thinking. He did offer me shotgun, but the nurses insisted I sit in the back. And I cried the whole way. I mean, I did not stop. I did not stop when he kept driving around the block, hoping that I'd get a little better. He didn't, I didn't stop when he picked me up and took me into the house. And eventually, he was getting concerned. So he did what every you know, smart former ex-bachelor would do. He called Candy and Barbie and Wendy and asked if they knew anything about taking care of babies. And they said that I might be hungry. So my dad has like the baby in one hand and the bottle and he's like mixing the formula. He's like, oh yeah, that, that looks good. He put the lid on, put it in the microwave for like what, like five minutes? It exploded everywhere. <laughs> so I kept crying. And we were off to a great start. Uh, my mom didn't end up coming home until I was 10. So my dad really had to give his all into being a parent pretty quickly. 
And, you know, some days he was great at it. Like, we'd visit my mom, and we'd drink yoo-hoos in the parking lot. We'd play basketball until sunset. He taught me how to put up Christmas lights and make model train sets, which I've never met somebody who loves model trains like this. He taught me how to change a tire, and, um, yeah, he was my best friend. But there were also plenty of nothing days, too, because my dad struggled with addiction. There were days when, you know, you weren't sure if he was okay because you hadn't heard a phone call for a while. There were days when I would get calls from bartenders nearby who would ask me how I was going to pick him up because he had passed out there, and I was like, I'm still nine, but thank you. There were lots of items around the house that would go missing because he would sell them for one reason or another or to pay the bills. And uh, if a bill collector called, he would answer it and he'd be like, no, 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 I'm sorry, you have it wrong. I'm actually Saint Peter, and you know, God's way is to forgive. <laughs> we fought a lot. <laughs> We're both really stubborn. <laughs> he, he would yell a lot, and he would get really angry, and it would be like I didn't recognize him anymore, you know? And my biggest fear as a kid for a long time was that one day he would go out and he would come back, and I, and I wouldn't even know if he was my dad anymore or not. Like, I wouldn't recognize him to that point, or that he, he wouldn't come back at all. And then he'd show back up, and he'd have a puppy. And he'd uh, take me to the beach for a month, and we'd surf, and we'd eat saltwater candy until we were sick. One Christmas, we uh, went to the only place that was open, which was Walmart, and took all their Nerf guns and had a Nerf gun fight through the aisles until we were politely asked to leave. My dad tried really hard because he, he loves me, you know? And so I want to leave you with one more story. It was a Tuesday. It was a rainy Tuesday in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I know. Juno, you know nothing of rain. I know. But no, it was really pouring. And my dad just wanted to stop really quickly for like a drink on the way home. And I had my books, I'm a little bit of a book nerd, so I had a book about the Oregon Trail that I was really excited to keep reading. So I was like, okay, I'll stay here. He was like, great, if a cop comes, I'm just going to get some change and bonus points, Mario, if you get change from the cop. I was like, okay, cool, 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 got a job. Um, a couple hours later, you know, uh, the family had made it across the Mississippi. They only lost half their stuff, and the little kiddo in the family had gotten sick but got better. And I was so excited to tell my dad this, and I started telling him as soon as I saw him, and as I'm telling the story, he's like, key, 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 key. He's like looking everywhere. Finally, found it. Put it in the car. I'm still going off about the Oregon Trail and like whatever their horses' names were because I was really excited about that. And he turned the car over and it click, which is the worst sound in the world, world when it's pouring rain and you're just both really tired. And he was like, what on earth were you doing? Did you have the light on? Did you have this? Did you have that? And I was like, dad, you had the key. He was like, okay, okay, okay. So it's not a dead battery. Let's try some other things. So we, you know, took the car apart in the front, like tweaked all of the gears and whatever we could do. Finally, my dad was like, I don't know what it is, but it might be out of gas because our gas gauge didn't work. So we walk this half mile in the pouring rain. <laughs> we get one of those red containers, walk back to the car, filled it up, put the key in, and it started. And we were so happy. My dad just like was laughing, and he tussled my hair. And he was like, Mario, you know, one day you're going to write a really good book about me. And I don't want to read it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone.
Our next speaker is Sam Martinez. Sam is a lesbian woman of color who has finally begun to live unapologetically and is a big fan of Halloween. Please welcome Sam. Hi everyone, my name is Sam. I am a big fan of Halloween, but I did not do laundry, so I do not have any Halloween-themed wear for you today. I had been wanting to speak at Mudrooms for quite a while now. My best friend in the world, Crystal Briette, is a board member, and she's always trying to get me to come up with something. But I had not been able to find a theme that really spoke to me, that really felt like it resonated with what I had to say until this month, which was all or nothing. And... Uh, the story starts when I was born. I was born in September of 1996, which meant two things. It meant that my parents had a really good New Year's Eve, and it also meant that I was always going to struggle just a little bit socially because I was always going to be just a smidge younger than the rest of my peers. When I was about four years old, I was itching and ready to start school, but I'm from California, and in California you cannot start kindergarten until you're five, but that's just preposterous to my mom. So she forced the school district to give me some sort of test so that I could start kindergarten and get out of her house so she could get her days back. And it worked. I passed the test. We found out that I was a little genius, which is one of the worst possible things you can be growing up in a very urban area. I struggled a lot with friendships. I usually only related to adults. I was really good friends with the librarian, the school guidance counselor, teachers, anyone you can think of except people my own age. When I was about seven, my grandmother, my, my dad's mother, moved in with us because she was needing to go through chemotherapy because she had breast cancer and we later found out leukemia and you can't get that kind of treatment in Mexico. So she came over to the States and she stayed with me and my mom and my dad and my older sister in our little two bedroom apartment in Santa Ana, California. And it was great. She lived with us for about four years until finally we realized that the chemo was only prolonging her misery and she wanted to go home and die peacefully in the house that she's known for over 40 years. So she went back to Mexico. When I was about 10, my dad decided that growing up like opposing neighborhoods for different gang rivalries was not the best situation for his two daughters. So he decided to pack us all up and moved us to the suburbs, which is where he worked. Uh, living in the suburbs was very interesting. I had never experienced racism until then. Growing up, I only ever saw and was around people who looked like me. I didn't know what a white person looked like. I didn't know that was a thing. And being exposed to racism at such a young age uh, really does something to your psyche. It really makes you think about things that you shouldn't have to think about but it puts your mind in a good perspective and it makes you want to be a good person because you don't want ever to make someone feel the way someone made you feel in a grocery store when you just want to try to find where the organic apples are and a woman is clutching her purse and her child to her when you pose no threat. When I was about 11, I started middle school and that is where I met Crystal Briette, who is the best person in the world. If you haven't met her, you should. Uh, it all started at a lunch table. It was probably about 2007 at this point. 
We had both been kicked out of our respective friend groups, me, because I didn't like to play dodgeball, which I think is understandable. So I was kicked out, and she was kicked out of her friend group because she could not name all of the Jonas brothers. She was a poser. She was not a true fan. So we found ourselves with no one to sit at lunch that day. We sat with each other, and then we just never stopped eating lunch together. It's 15 years so far, and I don't ever see us eating lunch with anyone else. By the time I was 14, we started high school. That was around the time that Crystal decided she wanted to dedicate her life to music and the marching band and just being the amazing person that she is. And that was around the time that I decided that I don't like eating lunch by myself. So I joined the marching band. I am not a musical person. I am not a musical person by any stretch of the word, but you can always be in percussion if you are willing to hit things rhythmically. So that is what I did. Around this time, my sister was about 16, and she got pregnant, which is not a good time. But my mom took it better than my dad. At this point, my parents were divorced. They actually got divorced when I was 13, right after my grandma died. And it was her last dying wish for my mom to leave her son, so we had to get that over with. Dealing with my sister's pregnancy was hard, but Crystal was incredibly supportive. We were a well-oiled machine, just grilled cheese sandwiches, foot rubs, anything you can think of to get that baby out smoothly. By the time she had the baby, my sister decided that her and her baby daddy were going to get married. They were going to live together and do their thing. So she moved out of the house, and we're Mexican, so that's okay. By the time I was around 16, I had a falling out with my mother and ended up having to support myself and live on my own. So I had to quit the marching band because I, any spare time that I had, I had to dedicate to working. By the time I graduated high school, I had two jobs. I was supporting myself. I had a lot of anxiety and I could not go to college. Crystal was amazing and incredibly supportive through everything. She was able to go to college. Uh, she always made me feel better about myself in low times when I would compare myself to other people my own age and felt lesser than, but no one can compare their journey to my journey because we're all on our own path. By the time we were 21, we had already been to New Orleans together. We had matching tattoos and she was feeling ready to finish up her degree, not in California. So she came to this little school called UAS, I'm sure you've heard of it, to finish out her degree. And it was incredibly difficult to let her go because in the 15 years we've known each other, I guess about 12 up until then, we had never spent a birthday apart. We had never been apart from each other. We'd been through everything together. We got our first period together, it was great. So I could not fathom the idea of her not being there, but I wanted her to be happy, so I let her go because she was gonna graduate in 2020 and come back, right? What was gonna happen? <laughs> but now I'm here in Juneau. She convinced me to pack up everything that I own and move here in April of last year. April 28th is gonna be my anniversary in this fair city. And I love it so far. I've met lots of great people, lots of not so great people, but either way, I don't see myself going anywhere. Thank you. It's uh, Joe, Nick, and Kevin. Those are, those are the Jonas Brothers, by the way. Um, so I, I'm going to adjust this mic here in a sec, but it'll be awkward if I do it while I'm 
doing the introduction to our next speaker, which is uh, Heidi Dragas. Uh, Heidi is a lifelong Alaskan, uh, born and raised in Fairbanks, earned her degree in history from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. After attending law school in Oregon, Heidi practiced as an attorney in Anchorage for 10 years before moving to Juneau to serve as Governor Bill Walker's Commissioner of Labor and Workforce Development. It was here that she met the love of her life, Kevin Sund. They're now raising their four-year-old daughter, Olive, here in Juneau. Heidi loves cooking, foraging for all wild edibles, but especially mushrooms, and spending time out on the beautiful waters of Southeast Alaska. She is currently a candidate for Lieutenant Governor running with Bill Walker. Welcome to the stage, Heidi Dragas. Thank you. Um, my friend Aliana informed me that there is a bonus Jonas named Frankie. So I just wanted everybody to know that. So I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. I am the middle child of three kids. I have an older brother, Eric, and a younger sister, Holly. And we grew up uh, in a middle-class family. My dad worked construction. My mom stayed home with us. And then she um, went to work uh, taking care of individuals with disabilities at home. So we didn't get to go out to eat that much. We'd go to church on Sundays, and we'd get really excited if we, like usually once a month, once every two months, we got to go out to eat. And this is like, it's a fall day, so it's in Fairbanks, that's like, it's, every, it's always cold. So it was, it was cold outside. And my dad said after church, like, let's go get pizza. Oh, you know, we're excited. All right, we're so excited for pizza. And we went to a church with really long services, unbearably long. And by the time we got to the pizza place, we were starving. We went to Godfather's Pizza, which is no longer in Fairbanks. But if you, anybody here from Fairbanks, been to Fairbanks? Okay, a couple of you, okay. Godfather's Pizza was in the Bentley Mall Annex. So there's the Bentley Mall, which most people know where the Bentley Mall is, and then there is the Bentley Mall adjacent. It's a little strip mall, and Godfather's Pizza was at the end of that. And we walk in, and one of the things I remember about Godfather's Pizza, it was notoriously slow. So I'm about eight or nine years old. My brother's two years older, my sister's two years younger, and we are starving. So my dad goes and orders the pizza. And we go sit down with my mom. We're sitting at the table. My oh, mom, we're starving. And okay, okay, you know, she's like, I can't make the pizza go any faster. So she goes, she goes to the cashier, gets some quarters. There's a bunch of arcades in front. And the way that Godfather's Pizza was set up is that the tables were all on a platform like this, and it was, you know, tables and chairs. And then you step down to the arcades. And I don't remember the other games except for Pac-Man. Pac-Man was right there, and I actually don't even think I ever played because the way that we played arcades is we watched our older brother play Pac-Man. So we're putting him quarters, we're watching him play Pac-Man, and we're like, where's this pizza? And so we go walk up the steps, you know, to where the tables are. Mom, we're starving. And she's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Go ask your dad. I don't know. And we're just whining and crabbing. In the meantime, there's these two gentlemen at a table, like, like there's a table between us and then they're over at this other table and they order this huge 
huge, this is how I remember it, you know, my nine-year-old self, this ginormous supreme pizza. It had, it was one of those, it just had everything on it. So they're sitting down and they, they ate like a couple pieces, maybe three pieces. And then we see them get up and leave. And my mom said, did they leave that pizza? And my brother Eric was like, I think, I think they left that pizza. They just, they, I mean, they walked out the door and we're like, you, we've been whining for probably 30 minutes. And she's like, well, you know, she did the only logical thing you should do. She walked over to the table and took the pizza. I said, well, they, they abandoned the pizza. I guess we'll eat it now. We were all happy. My mom went, got up and got plates and got the cheesy, shaky thing and, you know, brought it down to the table, got forks, and we're sitting, we're sitting down getting ready to eat. And my brother goes, Mom, Mom, Mom. And my oh, you know, Eric, hold on. I'm, she's getting everything set up. And Mom, Mom. She, Eric, just, just be quiet, my mom says. You know, don't worry about it. She goes, Mom, they're back. <laughs> and my mom freezes. All three of us look at her. And my mom is a very happy, joyful woman, and she's well-endowed. She's a larger woman, and she did what she thought was the most reasonable thing to do in that moment. She made herself big, and she laid on the pizza. <laughs> and she covered the entire pizza. And we were kind of stunned that this was happening, and these gentlemen walked to the table, like, and they started arguing with each other, like, Where, what'd you do? Like, I don't know, I didn't give it, well, why'd you leave up with me? And the, they're bickering and stuff, and my mom is talking to my brother, saying, like, you know, what, what are they doing? What are they doing? And she's like, I, I don't know, they're still there, they're still there, and they're arguing and bickering. They assumed that one of the busters came and took the pizza, so my mom was very relieved, and in the meantime, so they finally leave, as my dad is walking over with one of the pizzas, and then the, the buster came with the other pizza, and he looks and he sees my mom get up from the table, and she's wearing this, I remember this shirt, it was like a fluorescent orange shirt, and it had these weird hieroglyphic coyotes on it, and it's just covered in pizza grease and toppings. And my dad looks at her and looks at the pizza and says, I don't know you. And he, and, he, and he walks out, and he, he went to get the pizza to go because he couldn't handle it anymore. So anyway, we ended up boxing up the pizza, and I actually don't remember if we ate the pizza that my mom laid on, but I will tell you that that's the last time my mom laid on a pizza. <laughs> You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on April 12, 2022 on the theme All or Nothing. Do you have a story to share? Next month's theme is Uncharted Territory. To sign up or to learn more, visit mudrooms.org or follow us on Instagram at Juno Mudrooms. Suddenly kissed 
let's get started on our, our second half of stories. So our next speaker is Jane Hale. Born and raised in the New Jersey bush, Jane Hale started life as Jim with his twin sister, Judy. Jane began her professional life as a professor of early English literature and moved to Juneau in 1995 to make real money as a writer for Noah. From 2014 to 2016, she wrote an award-winning newspaper column, On Writing, and she is currently writing a new bi-weekly column called Coming Out in the Juno Empire. In 2011, she met the love of her life, Michelle Bonnet-Hale. She has five grown kids, one of whom, her son Harry, still lives here. When people ask Harry if he is any relation to the columnist Jane Hale, he tells them, yeah, she's my dad. Please welcome Jane. The funny thing is, this is probably the ballsiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I'm not even sure where this story starts. It's, it's been a long time coming, but uh, fast forward to last year, uh, 2021. I was, uh, I keep trying to think if there was some epiphany, some moment when it became clear to me that I was going to have to come out, but, but there was nothing like that. It was just sort of gradual, sort of a slowly gathering storm or something. Uh, I, I, last year I spent, uh, I traveled down to Florida twice to stay with, be with my sister, my twin sister, Judy. And the first time was in March of last year. I, I traveled down there was to be there for the memorial of her, her late partner, a lovely man named Richard Burge, who was, uh, was taken from us by cancer. And Richard was uh, during the, uh, spent he spent part of the year up here in Alaska. He was a skipper on a, uh, an ocean-going tug, escorting tankers in and out of Valdez. And then, in the, when he wasn't doing that, he was down in Florida racing Porsches with my sister. So I went down there to, for his uh, his memorial. And uh, the second day I was down there, my sister got her uh, second COVID vaccine. And uh, that night she had a you know, fairly typical reaction, you know, pretty bad flu-like symptoms. And uh, so I was glad I was down there. I, I fed her a light dinner and some Tylenol, and I, I tunked her into her bed. And I'm standing there at her bedside, and, uh, and I just got this sense of my mother's, my late mother's presence standing at my side, and she was talking to me. You and Judy are are getting older, she was saying, and you need to be taking care of each other. Well, whether real or imagined, those words from my mother resonated with me. And so then later that year, in August, I had to go back down to Florida because Judy was having surgery. And it was a fairly routine procedure. She was getting a, a pacemaker. But again, I, I wanted to be down there for her. I wanted to be a... I wanted to take care of her. And also, I kind of like it down there. Uh, you know, it was August. It was the height of summer, so the heat and the humidity during the day are pretty unbearable. But at night, it feels kind of pleasant, you know? It's, it's soft on the skin, and, and uh, I love the, the, the smells of the tropical flora and the breezes off of the Gulf and, and the crickets. I love crickets. What a racket they make all night long, but I, I love that noise. I don't know what it is. Anyway, so I was glad to be down there, and 
you know, I started feeling very uh, maternal towards my sister. I was running around doing all the errands and stuff, and, and I was really happy to be there. But also at the same time, I started feeling uh, like I really wanted to be back home in Juneau. I wanted to be back at the house. There was a lot to do at the house. I wanted to take care of that stuff. I wanted to take care of the dogs. And, you know, and most of all, I, I started feeling maternal towards my wife. I wanted to be back home taking care of her uh, the way she deserves, the, the way she takes care of me. It was really incredible. So I, I started feeling very maternal towards my sister. I'm feeling very maternal towards my wife. And, and uh, I, I think I started feeling very maternal towards myself. And it was the first time I'd ever felt like that. I, I was, uh, I started thinking, well, you know, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm old, I'm getting old. How am I gonna live the rest of my life? What does it even mean to, to live well when you're, you're, uh, you're getting up there? I remember uh, lying in bed one night, listening to, listening to the crickets, and thinking, oh, what if, you know, what if, maybe I could come out, maybe I could talk, start talking openly about these feelings that I've had, you know, pretty much as, as long as I can remember. And I started thinking, well, maybe I can do this, maybe it's, uh, you know, something I can finally put out in the open. So, uh, and I started thinking, you know, well, you know, the time is right. You know, I'm retired, so I don't have to deal with workplace issues. Uh, my parents have, you know, have gone to the grave long ago, so I wouldn't have to worry about breaking their hearts with something they couldn't or wouldn't understand. And my kids, I knew my kids were going to have fun with this because they have this outlandish sense of humor. I knew I could count on them to keep it real, you know. <laughs> And of course, there was my sister was going to be supportive, and Michelle. I knew she was going to have issues, but I knew we could talk about this. Anyway, so I resolved to come home and really find a way to sort of break this news and start talking about this. So I got home, and I was giddy. I was so happy to be home. I was just giddy. I was in love with being domestic. I was doing all these things around the house. I painted the kitchen, the whole kitchen. I painted the cabinets this really lovely light blue. And the walls, this vivid, bright yellow. I mean, this is one cheerful kitchen, let me tell you. And, uh, uh, and I'm dropping little hints to Michelle. I'm saying things like, you know, I've really always hated acting like a man, you know, the whole stoic shtick, you know. And, uh, and saying things like, uh, like uh, whining that uh, women get to be so much more playful in the way they dress. Anyway, so, well, you know, I started, was going on like that for a couple of weeks, and you know, Michelle, she's, she's smarter than I am, so she picked up on us real quick. She wasn't too long before she, you know, she caught my drift, and we sat down. And I said, look, uh, babe, there's something I really have to tell you. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it, and uh, I let it out. That's my story. Okay, our, our next storyteller, the sixth and, and final of our, our planned <laughs> storytellers, the sixth person who knew they were going to be telling a story when they showed up tonight, uh, Eric Moots. Uh, Eric grew up in central Florida. At the time he was born, his hometown was both the lightning strike of the world and 
the meth capital of the world. So how do you measure that? I want to know. Um, so, uh, so that really shaped who he is as a person <laughs> growing up in such an absurd place. From Florida, Eric moved to Boston before moving to LA, before coming to Juneau. So he's now lived in all four corners of the US. You can find him now managing the bar at Devil's Club Brewery. Welcome to the stage, Eric. Hello. Uh, yeah, so I'm from Central Florida, uh, just south of Orlando. Disney was always a really big part of my life. My parents would always get us these things from Disney, and I think one of the most pivotal things that they ever got me was a DVD for the animated movie Brother Bear, which I'm sure most of you don't know what that is because it did not get received very well. But it's a movie about a tribesman in Alaska who gets turned into a bear because he hates bears, and then he has to become a bear and live with the bears and learn that family is important, and then he gets turned back into a human. And you kind of don't need to know all of that. The big thing about it is on the DVD, there was a featurette about Foley artists who are people who make weird sounds so that when the animated bear walks through the woods, it sounds like a not animated bear walking through the woods. And as a 10-year-old boy, making sounds was one of the things I was best at. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I was very fortunate that there was a arts middle school that my dad worked at. So I was able to go there for television. And I was just so completely engrossed in the process. And there were so many days that I had to ask my dad to stay late to pick me up because I was working on a project for my television classes. And then I was also very fortunate that there was an arts high school in my county and so I went there for film and I remember a lot of nights just hanging out with friends going around at like 10 p.m. on a school night and asking my parents to pick me up because I had to get a shot of a fountain for a scene that didn't make sense narratively but I didn't know that at the time. And where do you go from arts, a film middle school and a film high school except for a film college? And so I went up to Boston for film school and within my first week in there, I was on these sets helping make these films for my new friends that I had just made and missing out on a lot of parties that in hindsight, I kind of wished that I had gone to. And just getting really involved and realizing that this was really what, uh, at 10 years old, I didn't know that this was going to be my path going forward, but this was just, I put everything into making sure that I could be on these sets with my friends and making these really cool films that didn't really go anywhere because student films never go anywhere. But we had a lot of fun making them and I think there were just so many good times where just me and some friends made a story that they had thought of and kind of helped make their vision come true. And where do you go from film middle school to film high school to film school except for Los Angeles. And so I headed out west. Uh, I had a slow first week. And then I got one job and everything took off immediately. And I was working on all of these really insane things that I never thought that I possibly could work on within my first month there. I was cleaning up cow poop for Beyonce. I have a really fun photo of me holding a boom box while Miley Cyrus makes a weird face at me. And I got yelled at by James Corden, which is not as lighthearted as the others, but I feel like it's important to note because I don't like him now because of it. <laughs> and I was just working and I would 
was achieving this dream that I had had from when I was like 10 years old and I was really doing it. And that's a thing that so many people try to do. And it's not a very uh, high percentage thing of succeeding at, but I really thought that because I'd given it like everything I had for basically middle school until I was 23 years old, that I had kind of earned this. And it was a thing that it was happening so quick. I was working 16 hour days all of the time and it just really pushing myself to make sure that I was succeeding at this thing I was doing. And then COVID hit and Los Angeles isn't really a safe place to be during a pandemic. And so I went home to Florida <laughs> with the stipulation that I would go back as soon as I got a text about a job and my days back home were a lot slower. Uh, I would wake up usually pretty late, drink some coffee that my dad had made for me and then go bother my mom while she was trying to work from home in the living room. And every day, my dad and I would take these two hour long walks and I would just get to talk to him about things that I never really got the chance to and just really find out a lot of things about his life that I would never been able to if I wasn't home and they're able to kind of take that time with him. And we would go home and we would make dinner and we would watch Jeopardy and I will go ahead and say that if Rob ever ends up on Jeopardy, he will win. He will go toe to toe with Ken Jennings. He was getting perfect scores in all these categories pretty much every night. And I got to spend time with my sister, which I had never really done as an adult. Like we just never had the time. and. It was a really, I think, great thing for me. And then the two weeks that I thought I was gonna stay there turned into three months. And then I got a text from a producer that asked if I was free for a job at the end of next week. And so after a long round of crying with my parents, because they were shipping their baby boy back out, I went back to LA. And I realized I kinda didn't like waking up at 2 a.m. to drive two hours into the desert to film a Gucci commercial, work for 16 hours, and then drive home to get home at 10 p.m. just to wake up and do it again the next day. And the moments that I really enjoyed of being like at a bar or a restaurant and being able to point to a TV that's showing a commercial and saying, I helped make that, uh, kind of lost its luster when I remember that on the day we filmed that commercial, I got yelled at by a producer for not getting a coffee order correctly. And also that I was kind of taking up space for these people that did want to give it their all when I realized that without the sense of community that I had with my arts middle school and my arts high school and my film school, the film industry really didn't offer that much to me. And around this time, uh, this gal who I was absolutely at over heels for in college, we got back in touch and she said she's moved up to Juno. And around the same time I realized that I think I got the wrong thing from that Brother Bear DVD because what I got for it was that I need to make weird sounds in the film industry. And maybe what I should have gotten from it is how important the sense of community was to me and that that was a thing that I was really drawn to and also that I should move to Alaska. Thank you.
Okay, our last storyteller tonight is Guy Archibald, and I have a bio for him from previous pre-pandemic times. Uh, Guy grew up in the mountains of Colorado and first came to Southeast in 1983. He has lived in Wrangell, Sitka, and then Juneau since 2007. Most people that know him often comment that he always seems to be smiling. He likes to smile because no matter what else is happening, it makes him feel good. It also makes most people around him feel good. The smile does make certain people a little nervous. That also makes him feel good. <laughs> Please welcome Guy, and thanks so much. Um, well, thank you very much. Um, this is going to be a long story, very quick, and a few details are going to be left out for reasons you'll see later. <laughs> yes, I was born in the mountains of Colorado, and when I was much younger, I was a very avid technical rock climber. I would climb anything. I pioneered some new routes. I did some uh, first winter ascents of some of the 14ers. Uh, a lot of my friends thought that um, I was fearless, but even more of my friends thought I was just plain crazy, and they came up with a nickname for me that stuck for quite a while. They called me the dope on a rope. <laughs> and a family friend had done real well in business, and he retired fairly early in his 50s, and he took up a hobby of treasure hunting. And what he would do was chase down the legends of lost treasure. He would do tons of research, interview who he needed to. And if he thought it was worthwhile, he would assemble a crew to go after this treasure. This particular treasure was the result of a train robbery in the 1920s in southern Texas. Uh, three bandits and four horses got off with the government payroll. And the newspapers at the time described it as a small cage about four foot by two foot and it contained 20 canvas bags of $20 double eagle gold pieces and some silver. And they took off heading towards the Mexican border uh, with their loot and with a posse hot on their heels. The posse caught up with them and in the ensuing gun battle one of them was killed and two of the horses were wounded. The other two got away but they realized that they could not last too long um, trying to carry this on uh, two horses. So they dumped the cage somewhere and took off. Uh, was not successful. The posse caught up with them, and in another gun battle, they were both shot and killed, and a legend was born. Flash forward uh, to uh, 1972. Uh, two teenagers from a nearby town were out riding dirt bikes in the desert, and they came across what they described as a hole in the ground. Um, and they were well aware of the legend, so they crawled down in there, and it opened up into a big room, which then opened up into basically a big crack in the earth, a crevasse, an underground crevasse that just seemed bottomless. And they beat it back into town, got some rope and a couple flashlights, and one of them lowered the other one down into this hole. He was down there quite a while, and then all of a sudden, the kid on the end of the rope fell. And the kid at the top of the rope hadn't thought ahead enough to anchor the rope. And after the rope running through his hands and burning his hands, he let go. And the kid at the bottom of the rope fell down the bottom of the hole, seriously injured. He was down there for over 13 hours until a rescue crew could come 
rescue him, and I can't imagine what that was like in darkness that you can't imagine. Um, the rescue crew got him out. Of course, everybody knew why they were down there. The landowners had everybody searched when they were coming out. Uh, they searched the kids. When the kid went to the hospital and they looked at his pants pocket, there was three double eagle gold pieces in there. Everybody and their brother was trying to get down that hole, so the landowner posted uh, guards at the hole. And then he tried to get as much information out of the kid in the hospital. He was really badly injured. Um, and then they sent a crew down there. They spent about three weeks poking around down there, didn't find anything. And then in an overabundance of caution, they didn't want anybody else going there. down there, they dynamited up the entrance. So a uh, friend of the family's, he found both of these kids, now adults. The kid that had been injured was still traumatized and want to talk about it. The other kid still lived locally down there in southern Texas. He was fairly traumatized, and he was somehow persuaded to go show the friend of the families where this was at. He swore he had never shown anybody before. So they got some people down there, and they tried. They dug it out. It was basically just a big crater full of boulders, and they dug it out, and it did indeed open up into this big room about half the size of this room pinched off at the bottom and then led into this crack. And some parts of this crack you could hang in there just by arching your back. Um, so um, seeing that it seemed bottomless and everything, we need the dope on a rope. So they called me down there and a couple of friends and, and uh, we went down there, set up some anchors, a, a top belay, went across the crevasse setting ropes and the anchors. Halfway across, I tied a little handheld metal detector to a rope, dropped it down there, good 300 feet, and it went off. So anyways, we set up an anchor on the other side of the crack. I rappelled all the way down to the bottom of this crazy place. I can't explain to you how objectively crazy this was. This was hole in the ground was a death trap. Um, I get down there and I find debris from the rescue people is what set off the metal detector. An old metal hard hat, an old carbide uh, light. Um, I, so I used rope climbers, got back up to the top. I was talking to the second belayer um, and we realized there was something amiss about the story. Those two kids said that they couldn't talk to each other when they were underground. They couldn't hear what the other one was saying. But we had no trouble in that confined space. So we realized he was actually in another room. There was a fairly good wind blowing through this hole in the ground, even at 300 feet. That's not indicative of another entrance. It's indicative of other chambers. And so we noticed a little hole back behind where the second belayer was, and we dug it out. We actually had to take our helmets off and wiggle through there. And it opened back up into another room with the crack in the bottom of it, but it was jammed full of rocks. And we started digging at these rocks, trying to get it out of there. And we got down about the level of our shoulders, and all of a sudden, everything below us just disappeared. <laughs> Little dust coming out. And I, I looked at my buddy, and he looked at me, and we both realized that this hole in the ground had changed a lot since 1972. And it probably wasn't going to be a good idea to be in there when it decided to change again. So we had been at, down underground for over 24 hours. Uh, what I forgot to mention is when we arrive at the top of it, we have to chase the rattlesnakes away. 
Some of them went away, other ones went down into the rocks. And so we were completely spent. We were absolutely sure that gold was directly below us, but we were also absolutely sure that we stood a better chance of dying than getting that gold out. So better part of valor, with the last of our energy, we climbed back out of that hole. And I remember looking up through the last little 15 feet of boulders I had to climb through, knowing it was chock full of rattlesnakes, but I could see the sun was coming up. There was light. And I wanted nothing more in the world but to be standing back on the surface of the ground again. And so we crawled back up through there. We gave it our all, and you could say we came up with nothing. But actually, to this day, I feel very lucky that I'm still here. I came out, we came out with our lives. And uh, we actually took some pictures underground with a little you know, disposable camera. And I look at those pictures today, and I'm much younger and better looking. And I also have a big smile on my face, because that's what you do when somebody points a camera in your face. And it's all nice and lit up because of the flash. And, I, and in my mind, I still remember the, the terror and the fear and the adrenaline for those 24 hours. And the, the pictures just don't seem to match that anymore. But I think sometimes when you say all or nothing, you don't really know you've given it your all until you back off and, and head the other direction. And so it made for a good story, and we came up with nothing, but I'm still here. <laughs> Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live on April 12, 2022. The theme was All or Nothing. Proceeds went to the Marie Drake Planetarium. Live music was performed by Heather Mitchell and Tom Loker. Join us on May 10th for the final Mudrooms this season on the theme Uncharted Territory. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Rich Moniak, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and Jim Feitzer. I'm Crystal Briette and have a great night. Begin. They cry for some